0: from Washington, D.C. every Wednesday from 3 to 4 p.m. for an hour-long Generation Progress Takeover.
1: Check us out at genprogress.org or on Twitter at GenProgress.
0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. I am your co-host, Charlotte Hancock.
1: And I'm Brent J. Cohen.
0: Um, today we're going to talk about uh, a subject that um, has been in the news for weeks and really um, has, should have been in the news for longer considering the gravity of the situation. Um, we're going to be talking about wildfires, a topic that feels uh, just even more urgent in light of the massive fires that have been burning across the entire country of Australia with devastating consequences for both people and wildlife. Um, But the increase in the size and frequency of deadly wildfires is happening in in many parts of the world. Uh, In just the past decade, Californians have experienced half of the state's 10 largest wildfires. That's in the past decade, half of the state's 10 largest wildfires. Um, And seven of its 10 most destructive fires, including the 2018 Camp Fire, California's deadliest wildfire ever. Uh, We have talked on this show before about how climate change is fueling the rise in extreme weather and recent wildfires in California, Australia and the Amazon rainforest are just another example of this uh, disturbing trend. Experts agree that climate change is at least partially to blame. Summer temperatures in Northern California, for example, have been gradually increasing and just those few degrees of extra warmth have a huge impact on wildfires. So to talk to us about her own experience with the wildfires in California um, and her take on how climate change is impacting these disasters all over the planet, today we are joined by Lola M. Cornish. She's the Senior Training and Technical Assistance Specialist for Strategies 2.0 at the Child Abuse Prevention Center, um, and she's also a climate change advocate. Thank you so much for joining us, Lola.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Uh, so, Lola, to start, can you share a little bit about yourself and your background, um, and what are you working on now, and how did you get involved in the climate advocacy space?
2: Sure. Um, I'm a Californian native. I live currently in Sacramento. I was raised in Napa, though, which um, is one of the areas that was affected by recent fires. And I've been um, a child advocate for most of my life. My degrees in early childhood education, and I've worked on public policy related to early childhood education and disaster preparedness over the years. And I've done a lot of training for parents and child care providers, in addition to working directly with children. I have a passion for supporting families so that their children can have a bright future. Um, I I volunteer with a couple of organizations as well, the California Association for the Education of Young Children and Educators for Peaceful Classrooms and Communities. Recently, I've become more vocal in advocating for policies that counter climate change. Um, My grandmother's home was completely destroyed by the fast-moving Atlas Peak Fire in 2017, and my brother narrowly escaped with his life. And so you could... This experience has really permanently altered my world in a lot of different ways. And I would do anything to make sure that no one else has to suffer a similar fate. And the sad thing is that these things are just becoming more and more common.
0: So um, it was really personal experience that sort of um, drove this home. It sounds like you've been an advocate for a long time. But um, this particular issue became uh, closer to your heart as um, it became um, life-threatening to family members of yours.
2: Yes, okay. and and loss of, I mean everything. Our family gathering pay, place as well. Um, I'm like I said, I'm really a child advocate, but part of that means um, leaving a, behind a world where children can sur- thrive and not just survive, right? So I've always been kind of the California tree hugger type, trying to be a conscious consumer and an impactful individual, using reusable shopping bags and recycling and all of those things that we can do. Doing trash cleanup days in the river and but you know now i i'm realizing that without advocating for bigger changes to be made industry and government-wide as well individual changes are just not going to be enough so i guess you could say you know i've been spurred to action by my family's tragedy
1: yeah i mean that that last point lola is such a such an important point here which is i think um you know for for a long time a lot of us were led to believe that if we just took quote-unquote personal responsibility, right? We recycled things that were supposed to be recycled. We used res- res- reusable shopping bags. And certainly those things are important, and we mm-hmm. should continue to do them. Um, but there's also an industry um, um, role here and an outsized role, in fact, as we think about uh, climate change and the global scale of climate change and the impact that industry has in this realm that it's not it's not enough for us to 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 make small changes in our lives. As important as that is, okay. it's also really important for big corporations and big industry to be responsive, uh, and for government to take a role in that and making sure that industry is responsive uh, and responsible uh, as it as it comes to not um, propelling climate change forward because it does lead to extreme weather like these like these wildfires. Yeah, I agree.
0: So, Lola, you're currently based in Sacramento in California. Um, Yes. How have you seen the frequency and the size of wildfires in Northern California change in recent years?
2: You know, it's interesting because until something happens to you personally, it's kind of there. You're cognizant of it, but you're not hyper-cognizant of it. (laughs) And like you said at the beginning of the program, 15 of the 20 largest and most destructive fires in California have happened since the turn of the century, Mm. since the year 2000. That's 20 years. When I was young, growing up in California, these kinds of fires were always far away. They were rural. They didn't have a lot of impact on, on lives um, as uh, the way that they are now. It's never been in these urban areas like we've seen in recent years. And um, thinking about how quickly these fires traveled, it's it's just amazing to me. My, my grandmother's house had been threatened by fire several times Um before but it was never touched until 2017
0: and and what led you to the conclusion that climate change um, is such a big part of this problem
2: you know um, it's kind of connecting the dots so I as as I said I grew up in Napa and I moved away in high school but then in my 30s I moved back and one of the first things that I noticed when I moved back was how dramatically different the weather patterns were From what I remember growing up that I winters were not the same kind of winters and summers were not the same kind of summers summers were hotter and winters were not as wet and and it was striking to me. Um, Then there's you know there's all these new terms for new phenomenon like atmospheric rivers I had to look that one up when I heard it on
0: the news because i'd never heard of it before what is an atmospheric river (laughs) what i said yeah what's an atmospheric river i feel like i have something something new to be terrified by because of climate change
2: (laughs) well it's something that hits the bay area frequently and involves um huge amounts of water dumping in specific areas
0: that's what they call it flash floods um
2: but i mean it's obvious that weather conditions have worsened every year the fires hurricanes floods um, all more devastating in, than in recent history. and I, I don't see how you cannot connect the dots to climate
1: change. Yeah and there, there are reports that have come out including from the UN that, are, that speak specifically to the fact that the, that the wildfires and, and brush fires in California in particular and certainly in other places um, are, are becoming more um, severe. And that is happening more frequently, as you said, and, and that it's specifically because of what's going on in terms of climate change and the changes to these weather patterns. Um, and it's a, a really, I think, an, 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 unfortunately, uh, an unfortunate but very direct way in which climate change is impacting people's real lives today. We, you know, if you listen to people, policymakers talk about it, too often we're talking about what's going to happen 20, 30 years from now. And certainly that's important but what can't be lost, is the impact is starting now. And I think um, hearing, and, and I appreciate you sharing your personal story about the, the loss of your grandmother's home and the, um, the, the um, immediacy of which your brother's life was, was threatened by it. Um, and I appreciate you sharing that personal story because I think it helps illuminate for people the fact that this is happening right now. The impacts of climate change and the, and, and the resulting severe weather and fires is happening today. It, it will not take 30 years for it to start because it has started. Exactly.
0: So uh, right now we're talking to um, our our guest, Lola Cornish, Lola M. Cornish. She is the Senior Training and and Technical Assistance Specialist for Strategies 2.0 at the Child Abuse Prevention Center. She is also um, an advocate and a storyteller um, and speaking up um, against climate change, specifically uh, wildfires from her lived experience in California. Um, You're listening to the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show, and we will be back in just a couple of minutes. Um, to keep this conversation going with Lola.
3: Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show.
0: co-host charlotte hancock
1: and i'm brent A. cohen
0: uh we've been talking um on the on the line with um storyteller and um activist uh lola m cornish she's been working um with children in california for the past several years but also more recently gotten involved um in advocacy around the wildfires in california because of members of her family who have been directly impacted um by by the wildflower wildfires in california uh lola thank you so much for being with us
2: thank you
0: um I think part of the impetus for this show um, was talking about uh, the Australian wildfires that have um, been going on. Australia has been ravaged by the worst wildfires seen in decades. Um, At least 28 people have died nationwide um, and more than 3,000 homes have been destroyed or damaged. Um, And that's getting a lot of media attention right now, as it should. Um, But also California uh, has had some exceptionally serious wildfires um, over the past several years. Um, And all this has been exacerbated by persistent heat and drought, um, and many point to climate change as being a huge factor in making natural disasters like this go from bad to worse. Um, So, Lola, how is the lack of action on climate change uh, harming people, and why is Northern California particularly vulnerable here?
2: Well, I think California is particularly vulnerable because we have such a rural to urban mix really there's there's swaths of california that are like deserts or or frontier where it's just really forest and then there's major metropolitan urban areas too um but how it's harming people it's in a myriad of ways really um they're not they're not just far out anymore like we said they're close to home they uproot entire communities and cause extensive property loss and environmental damage. Um, the air quality, when you're anywhere near these fires, is horrible. And for miles around where they are. Um, during the campfire, for example, I, I, downtown Sacramento was so dark, so gray, so ashy. It, the air was just toxic. You had to wear masks. And we're miles miles away from where that happened. But then... For those who are survivors, um, there's also the trauma that comes with this. And it's worse for children than for adults, but adults certainly have their share of trauma as well. And I think that there's a financial hardship, that there's a community hardship, there's hardships and and effects on the mental health of the people who have been affected by these things. Um, when I drive through... My grandmother's old neighborhood, there's houses that are still being rebuilt. There's um, empty lots that are a stark reminder of what happened. And that whole community has to heal from the situation. Whole communities have had their entire lives uprooted. People have had to move around a lot as a result of being displaced by these fires. And many of them will never return back to their original community. There's still refugee camps for those who have nowhere to go. And the media moves on to the next disaster, and those who have lived through it, they're going to carry it with them forever. Trauma never really leaves us; we just get better at managing it. And as the populations are displaced by these events, communities they transition to also bear the trauma and increased needs for services and support. Um, I consider myself a fairly resilient person, and I have a lot of protectors factors in my pla- in place. Um, but and it wasn't my house that burned. Uh, I can't imagine having to be in a position where, like my brother was, where the house he was living in is now gone. Everything is gone. He was evacuated in his underwear, no wallet, no cell phone, no nothing. Um, and trying to rebuild a life from that is challenging. And it, the trauma manifests itself in a lot of different ways. I mean, I um, live in the path of the Cal Fire air tankers that take water to northern california fires and i can tell the difference in the sound of those tankers um from any other plane that takes off over my house it it just makes you really hyper vigilant and i think that's something to be considered really um we survivors have got to tell their stories but they've got to heal from that trauma first so they can get to the to a place where they can
0: Thank you so much for sharing Lola um, that that is absolutely traumatic. I, we've had uh, people come on before who've um, you know experienced hurricanes, all manner of natural disasters and thinking through the trauma that um, you know that affects families and the children um, in in the aftermath of something like that when your your home and your community is, um, wiped out. And I know wildfires are a special breed of, uh, of that totally um, indiscriminate in uh, where they head, um, what path they take. Um, is really, uh, you know, thank you for sharing your story because, and your brother's story, because um, it's something, as you said, uh, people, people need to share um, in order to get change on this, but also going to be something that people should only share when they start feeling comfortable sharing it um, because of how, how um, terrifying it can be. Um, in your view, what can we do to fight the issue of climate change? Um, is there, um, since you, uh, are, are an activist in this, um, what are ways that you think people can get involved?
2: Well, I think that there's a lot of different ways that people can get involved. Um, one is just raising awareness, obviously, um, programs like this, but as a nation, we've got to, um, be informed, I don't consider myself a climate change expert by any stretch of the imagination, but I do have a compelling story. And I think there's a lot of other people out there that are in the same position. Um, I think it's important that we vote and that we elect forward-thinking leaders who are concerned with the future beyond their next election. It's our duty as citizens in a democracy, not just to vote, but to hold those we've elected accountable. And that means sometimes it feels like we're screaming into the void, but you know what, we have to keep screaming. We have to if we want to see any real change. We can vote with our wallet, too, purchasing sustainable products from reputable companies, um, doing research on ethical and eco-friendly brands and their certifications, eat what's in season and locally grown instead of what's been transported, great differences. There's so many small changes we can make that will create a positive impact and reduce our carbon footprint, but we need to learn to be conscious and not just take the convenient option because it's available. We also need to find like-minded individuals and form coalitions who are ready and willing to advocate at the governmental level. These personal stories really do have an impact, even at the state and federal level, on the decisions that that our legislators make.
0: That is. That's absolutely right. Um, And Lola, thank you so much for your time. Uh, You've been listening to Lola Cornish. Um, We're the Generation Progress takeover of the Leslie Marshall show. And we will be right back after this break with more on wildfires.
3: Leslie Marshall, real people, real life, real talk.
1: Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your co-host, Brent J. Cohen.
0: And I'm Charlotte Hancock.
1: So welcome back. We are, um, we spent the first half of this show um, talking with uh, uh, Lola Cornish about her experience in Northern California, um, dealing firsthand with uh, the impacts of brush fires and wildfires in California, who um, unfortunately lost uh, her grandmother's home Uh told us the, the, the experience and the, and the trauma and the impact that it had on her and her brother and her family. Um, and we talked as part of that experience a bit about the role that climate change has played in really accelerating the severity and frequency of wildfires in California. Um, and so we're, we're going to continue this conversation now, and we're, we're pleased, to join, uh, pleased to welcome Brandon Smith, uh, the founder and uh, executive director of the Forestry and Fire Recruitment Program, in California. Brandon, thanks for joining us.
3: Hey, Brent. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, so fair fair transparency for all listeners out there in the world. Uh, Brandon and I know each other for many years going back uh, to our, our days at Cal uh, as roommates, and uh, he now leads the forestry and, and fire recruitment program. I'm proud to serve as a board member um, of really what's an incredibly impactful organization doing important work out there in California. So I'm glad to, glad to have you on, Brandon, and talk a bit about uh, about the work that you're doing.
3: Okay, cool. Well, thank you, Brent, for having me. Uh, so my name is Brandon Smith. I am the executive director and co-founder of FFRP, which is the Forestry and Fire Recruitment Program. Uh, basically, we're a nonprofit organization that helps people um, who are currently or previously incarcerated in California's fire camps uh, become wildland firefighters once they get home. Um, A lot of people don't realize that 30% of the firefighting force in California are people who are currently incarcerated. And so when they get home, they have limited opportunities to transition those skills once they get home. And so we help them to go do that
1: so you just you just threw a lot on the table and I want to start pulling that apart so <laughs> so you are your organization you described a, a criminal justice reform issue right in one breath which is we've got folks coming home from prison with important technical skills on how to fight fires who have been doing this work who get home and can't transition into full-time firefighter jobs including wildland firefighter jobs because of their criminal records and two yes. Um, and you actually – you talked about the fact that 30%, I think you said, of the um, workforce in California that's fighting wildland fires are actually folks who are currently incarcerated. Is that right? Yes, correct. And so is there a – like why why does California rely on people who are incarcerated to fight fires in the state? Can we talk about sort of what – like why that's happening and, and, and whether California has the the capacity and and, and, and workforce to really – um, combat the wildfires in a way that's necessary? Okay. All
3: right. Yeah. So on um, one level, on a, on a basic level, I would say that it's a reflection of the fact of uh, the United States continually using prison labor um, as a means to kind of offset the work and the labor force that they need. Um, on the second level, I will say that uh, wildfires are increasingly um, getting more severe in California. Wildfires are increasing in their time frame. Um, fire season here, I'm based out of L.A., so fire season in L.A. is basically year-round nowadays. And so with that comes a growing need. And so a lot of folks have proposed solutions, but there hasn't been a common ground on a solution to handle um, the increasing wildfire wildfires, excuse me, uh, coupled with the increasing labor need. And so what I think most, what they do is they just rely more heavily on the population that they already have is using prison labor.
1: Yeah. Uh, how, so, and, and so your work in terms of the criminal justice reform aspect of it, helping folks, um, get, uh, important, uh, Living wage jobs, doing firefighting work, is just critically important. Both addressing the fact that people do better when they come home and they're able to sustain themselves and their families uh, through uh, employment, especially knowing that it's things that they've already been trained in, um, and two, helping to fight against the some of the repercussions of climate change. Right, and, and from the standpoint of we know that fires are increasing because of the impacts of climate change.
3: So- right, most definitely. Um, in 2018. Uh, The U.S. government, uh, they ordered this report, the 2018 U.S. Climate Report, and one of their charges was to go research why these wildfires are increasing in the western U.S., Um, and they found three or four main reasons. One is climate change. Um, Number one, the western U.S. has always been prone to wildfires, and that's only getting significantly worse, um, drier drier summers or drier rainy seasons, hotter summers, um, droughts, all of those types of things, uh, bug kill, uh, too many dead trees all around, too many fuels out here in California with not enough people to reduce them. And then you have these wildfires, and our job as a wildland firefighter is to respond to the, to the fire. But how can I respond to the fire if what I need to go do is go reduce the amount of fuels out here? And so it becomes like a dual-edged sword where there are increasing fires and there are there is an increasing need to go reduce the amount of fuels or uh, fire fuels, what we call them, trees, brush, those types of things. And there's just not enough people to do it. And so California's quick-fix solution is just to utilize uh, the labor force they have readily available in fire camps.
1: So – Let's talk a little bit more about FFRP's work for a sec. So, in addition to um, helping folks transition to wildland firefighter jobs, what are you doing, sort of in the? Um, if someone comes to you right away, what does that look like? You talked a bit about the the I forget exactly what you called it the the fuel for the fires. Um, are you all Are you all approaching that or thinking about how to how to really have an impact on the front end?
3: Right. So so. Personally speaking, so I was once in fire camp. Um, I was someone who grew up as a child who watched backdraft, didn't want to be a wildland firefighter. Then I actually got to camp, and I decided I loved it and pushed forward. So with that, I have, like, two pieces. And one piece is, as a wildland firefighter, I realized that things are getting worse for people. Um, You spoke earlier about... Um, Lola, who lost her grandmother's house um, and who was dealing with the trauma with climate change, you know, as a wildland firefighter in camp and when I did it professionally, I, I see those things all the time. So, FFRP attacks this on an environmental stance and we attack this on a criminal justice stance. So, we do this in three ways. Number one, the first thing that we do is we do what we call in reach into fire camps. So, when I was Um, A wildland firefighter, well, excuse me, when I was in fire camp, incarcerated, um, I wanted to be a wildland firefighter, and when I asked around to figure out how to do it upon my release, there were pretty much no resources. Everybody smiled and said, good luck, but I don't know how that's going to work. Secondly speaking, I realized at the end, the tail end of my fire season, that fires were happening in an alarming more rate, higher rate than how they used to happen. And so FFRP came about where one thing we do is the inReach into fire camps where we go spread our stories and we go share to them that um, I've done it so you can do it. You know, I transitioned from fire camp to become a professional wildland firefighter, so we go share that. We do go do reaches in camp. The second thing we do is we do a workers' hub where we kind of, like, collect all the hiring notices for wildland positions. We find out who's hiring where. We help folks out with their resume, with their interviews, and we kind of give them some soft skills, some light skills so that they can kind of transition uh, or get into that job. And lastly, um, and I think this is the biggest piece about the environmental point that we do is we operate a pre-apprenticeship program, wildland hazard mitigation specialist. So right now we have a group of eight people. um, So let me back up. We have a partnership with L.A. County where um, L.A. County and us, we sponsor eight people for 300 hours on-the-job training to do fuels reduction work in wildfire-prone communities. Right now um, our crew is out working um, in Bell Canyon, California, California, that's in Southern California, Los Angeles. They were affected by the Woolsey fire, and one of the things that we wanted to do was not only do we want to help folks become wildland firefighters, but we want to help reduce the harms that, or the the challenges, the issues, the struggles that can kind of fuel wildfires. So we do defensible space. We'll go look at your house and go say, "Hey, we you should cut down these trees and this brush and get a hundred foot clearance from this." Uh, and then we could actually go implement the job, and we do fuels reduction projects. So we do it on a dual level. On one level, where we're kind of doing the um, fire suppression work to kind of reduce the effect of wildfires if they come to areas. But then also, we're also doing justice to folks um, who have been involved in the criminal justice system, helping them out to become wildland firefighters.
1: That's awesome. So you're 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 attacking it from multiple angles, and. Um, we've got just about a minute left before we go to break, and so thinking about looking to the future a little bit, what are your what are your goals or hopes for for what you and the organization will be able to accomplish over the next couple of years?
3: So one of our goals, especially, and this is a great question leading off from the environmental one, the biggest one that we want to do is there. California does not have a big enough labor force to reduce the amount of fire ready fuels in California, and one of the things that we want to go do. Is help to create that workforce. So we have people um, who can go out here and go do fuel reduction work all throughout California. And I would love to expand on that after the break.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that's those are those are skills they've been equipped with. And then they're uh, while they're inside, oftentimes, and then receiving that on-the-job training from you in real time. So we're talking with Brandon Smith of the Forestry and Fire Recruitment Program. We'll be back after this after this break to talk more about the work they're doing to combat climate change and the impacts with wildfires in California. over the Leslie marshall show i'm your co-host brent j cohen
0: and i'm charlotte hancock
1: and we have joining us again here uh brandon smith the founder and co-founder and executive director of the forestry and fire recruitment program thanks for coming back with us brandon hey no worries thanks for having me yeah so i think uh charlotte and i were talking during the break want to want to go back to that uh conversation we started just a little bit about uh some of your goals and hopes for where the organization's going you said there was something you wanted to To come back to afterwards.
3: (laughs) Yeah. So FFRP, um basically, like I mentioned earlier, we've launched this pre-apprenticeship program where we're training people to be wildland hazard mitigation specialists. And this is a unique program, unique opportunity. We've partnered with LA County, a couple of other uh community based organizations in LA, um, the America for Job Centers in California, and basically and and a homeowners association. Oh, that to say, basically we've come together to figure out a way how to develop a transitional workforce, a training program, increase the amount of wildland firefighters, reduce fire hazards or uh uh what, excuse me uh what's the term uh fire prevention increased fire prevention work so before the fire happens reduce the amount of stuff there and it's a very unique program right now we have eight pre-apprentices um, they finished up 200 out of the 300 hours that they have paid on the job training they do fuels reductionist projects tied to the woosley fire which was a big fire um, last year uh, with, within L.A. County. And nowadays, we're going to be expanding that. Um, we're finishing up Cohort 1. We have Cohort 2 that's going to be starting up next fall. Um, and some interesting news is that we've talked to a few other partners and a few other counties, and we're probably going to be, number one, expanding our crew from eight people in L.A. County to 20 people in L.A. County. And then also, we're going to be creating – a replica or similar crew in san bernardino county we just had a meeting with the u.s with the san bernardino national forest where they agreed to give us some of the work projects that they have because they realize that they don't have all the labor and they need to do fuels reductions projects so on the environmental tip we are growing our base when it comes to doing um, fire prevention work
0: so brandon uh as Brent mentioned earlier, this is really sort of like, you're working on the intersection of like a bunch of different issues um, in California by working, uh, by running this organization. Um, So you're working on climate change. You're working on criminal justice reform. You're working on um, addressing the um, skilled labor shortage um, in California. Um, and if people want to get involved in this issue, um, what should they be calling their reps to ask? What should they be calling um, their members of Congress to ask about?
3: Yeah. So um, if folks are specifically in California, um, they can call and speak about our work, FFRP. But I think the biggest thing on a, on for any community that is Um, dealing with the increase in wildfires, I think they should call their um, elected officials and try to figure out how to um, increase their workforce from the current workforce they utilize. Like, for example, California utilizes people um, in prison. So does Nevada. So does Arizona. I believe Washington does as well. Um, Florida, North Carolina, they do it similarly, a little bit different because it's a different region. But, you know, so one of the things is if we're going to utilize folks who are incarcerated to kind of subsidize some of the work for the country, I believe that the country or the respective local government should provide some support for them to utilize those skills once home. You know, one of my challenges was that I received two months of training while I was incarcerated that cost, I'm sure, over $20,000 to get me trained. But when I came home, it was hard for me to utilize it. One of the things would be, I would say, to to, to encourage your elected officials to find out, help to figure out transitional pathways for people. Um, and secondly would be to... to comment and see where people land on licensing issues for people we have people within ffrp who have been incarcerated for 10 years been home for seven years um, and they still can't be emts emergency medical technicians Um, there's licensing issues around that so those will be the two things great question charlotte thank you
1: yeah, so I, I just want to uh, drive a point home on that, on one of those that you said, Brandon, which is folks are, are getting trained inside. They have the skill set. There's a need for this particular um, labor in terms of wildland firefighters, and people should have the opportunity to apply those skills and get paid for it as professional wildland firefighters when they come home. And I think the work that you're doing to help, to help with that transition is crucially important, but there should be established pathways and support um, so that uh, folks really can understand what this looks like and how we get from, from A to B. And and organizations, and FFRP in particular, should be a part of that. But uh, so many of the barriers that you had to overcome um, just, just aren't necessary.
0: Yeah, we're talking about spending right. taxpayer dollars to specially train people and then telling those people after um, they get out of the system that they can't use those skills despite – all the studies that we know of um, that show that um, making sure that people have jobs and trainings and that sort of thing reduce uh, likely recidivism. Res- recidivism rates. That's
1: right. So. And, and it's investing in people's ability to take care of themselves and their families, and, and that contributes to safer and more stable communities. Yeah.
3: Right. Right. Yeah. Most definitely. Just as on a small tangent, um, I would encourage the listeners to go look into a program at CIM which is the California Institute for Men, uh, they have a program there where they train men, uh, men who are incarcerated to become deep-sea divers uh, out of Long Beach. And so while they're incarcerated, they go train to be deep-sea divers and whatever's entailed with that. And then when they come home, uh, the guy who trains them and a couple of other companies, they hire these folks. And they're not only dealing with uh, the environmental stuff with the deep-sea diving, but it's also helping these folks out on a criminal justice level, on a reentry level, to get them gainful employment, to go get them um, options to benefit their families and their homes, ways to use, use their time. Um, I think these are extremely innovative ways for the country to look at. If we're going to continue to use this labor in some way, how can we support these people? Because one thing, and lastly, I'll say, you know, on a public safety issue, when it comes to me, you know, while I was incarcerated, you know, a lot of people are scared. Oh, my gosh, you're going to be near my home. You're going to be in my home. Are you going to break in? Like, like you don't have those instances while we're incarcerated. So you're not going to have those when we come home. I don't know if
1: I... That's No, absolutely. I, I'll, I'll sort of wrap up that point by saying um, we have an incredible amount of untapped talent and skill um, in prisons across this country, and we really need to do a better job of taking advantage... Not taking advantage of it, but of empowering folks to use that for the for the good. This has been the Generation Progress Takeover the Leslie Marshall Show. I've been your co-host, Brent J. Cohen.
0: And I'm Charlotte Hancock.
1: Thank you to our guests, and we'll see you next week.